Hello, my lovelies, and welcome to another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts. Um, it's me, Tim. How are you? I hope you're well. So today's episode is me chatting to the uh, debut fantasy author, but an author who has also been around for a long time in another form. Uh, that makes him sound like a sort of like a face hugger that's laid its eggs and turned into a full-blown alien. Um, only to me it does. To you it obviously didn't. But um, he was a, and uh, still is, uh, um, a writer for tabletop RPGs, but he has gone into writing fantasy novels. It's the author Gareth Hanrahan talking about his new novel out from Orbit in the UK called The Gutter Prayer. Um, so from that introduction, some of you will have already slightly started to flinch away because it sounds very, very geeky. And that you're not wrong, actually. This whole conversation is two grown-ass men geeking out hugely. And I hope that the enthusiasm that comes out of that uh, is a kind of beautiful thing in its own way. I think it's... I think it's, you know, I, I understand, and I think me and Gareth both understood it when we were talking, that, you know, people going too far down the whole rabbit hole of their enthusiasms can be slightly alienating. But, I don't mean to start all this with this caveat about all the things that are wrong with it. I loved having this conversation. And I have to say, I, I loved reading The Gutter Prayer as well. Now, I know I don't ever come on and say, oh, I've got this next guess on the work is shit but <laughs> just try and put that aside i i'm i'm not saying that other guests haven't you know i haven't read their books and, and enjoyed them too but i just feel like this is really up my street and something about the tone of it and i've just been waiting a long time to re i didn't really know what i was missing in fantasy and a lot of things that were popular i just wasn't just for whatever reason weren't quite connecting with me and I read this and we talk a bit about the world but just tone wise and the cool ideas that are feeding into the world and the pacing and it's just written well but it's fun um it basically there's a lot of things that where I go I want this I want this I want this I'm quite demanding when it comes to fantasy or novels in general right and I, I, you know, for what it's worth, you you know, you may not um, hold great stock in my opinion, but I, I just really had such a great time reading this book. And so me, me and Gareth talk about his book, also writing for tabletop RPGs, also some like stuff that I think is going to be really useful to you, whatever genre you're writing in, which is what you learn from role-playing what you learn from essentially every week turning up and doing improv stories um as a group and creating worlds and reacting to other human beings around the table re reacting to chance because you roll dice and we had um i know we had grant howitt on a while back to talk about the his um, rpg spire and his experience of writing role-playing games and um i know we had peter newman on who talked a bit about uh role playing as well so like i know we've had and there are other uh authors we've had on who do this so like i 
I, for those of you who write literary fiction, of course I have literary fiction guests on, and I love chatting to them as well. So it's not, I don't want you to feel too much like, oh, these episodes aren't for me. I I want to welcome you in, because I, I think the, the, the dark side of any communi- community, whether it's a role-playing community or any kind of community, is that it starts to define itself by who are the outsiders. And I don't, I, and the world of geeks for whatever reason for multiple complex reasons um has sometimes been a bit exclusionary i think often because it's contained the excluded like i was a, a geek i got my glasses at the age of five and um and i was like viciously bullied <laughs> and i liked reading and i liked computers and i got into all those things and it it's been a, a place of safety and even in the last five years since I've kind of like re-gone back to my kind of geek roots and got back into a lot of the things that I gave up during as a teenager as I was kind of like finally had them like thrashed out of me. You know, I find myself kind of interacting with a lot of deeply vulnerable human beings um, and really nice human beings. I've had some lovely experiences, but I'm also aware that the geek community has had problems with sexism really bad real pro- really bad problems with that really bad problems with uh, racism really bad problems with like homophobia and just all sorts of nastiness where geeks and particularly uh video gaming but right across the spectrum i think there's not any area of geekdom that hasn't been affected by it on some level to do with not being diverse not being open and people who have been excluded re-perpetuating that exclusion on other people um, so I just I just want to say, as someone who sort of self-identifies as a geek or a nerd or whatever, if you are not, do you don't you don't see yourself as being part of this world? I want to, I'd like to welcome you in and invite you in and say you are welcome. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to be able to reference the like genealogy of high elves in. Tolkien's work you don't have to know what a d20 is or the six stats in Dungeons and Dragons you you don't have to know anything and I realize I've I've spoken to people when you know I've been at a convention and spoken to somebody (laughs) in the midst of it and just reeled off all this jargon and realized that they have no idea what I'm talking about and so but I think mainly we are talking about our love of stories and I loved having this conversation. If you are a geek and into this world, then you're going to have a hell of a time. But for everyone else, I, you know, I, I'd say just like kind of stick with it. Hopefully it'll be like a safari through this world. I think you really, I mean, like actually reading the gutter prayer itself, like it doesn't have any of that necessarily kind of like knowledge. It's not, it's not that in depth. But when me and Gareth are talking, you know, we go pretty inside baseball. And I loved it. And I hope that that's one of the things... You know, I, I feel like when I do the show, it's important that we kind of we go and we talk about the crunchy stuff. Right. And when we're talking about editing, we go into stuff about uh, adverbs and subjunctive clauses. And when we're talking about geek stuff, we go into the sort of the ins and outs. And he actually, oh, my God, like some of the stuff that <laughs> talks about, like stuff like he's done with Bram Stoker's Dracula, turning that into an art tabletop RPG. It sounds so damn cool and really interesting um so yeah i really had a great time 
and I just want to if you know if you are n- not a geek I just want I just want to extend a hand of of welcome to you and say look if if anyone wants to like message me on Twitter or Facebook or email me if I've got the time you know I can explain stuff I can give you some starting points if you ever want to play games because I really feel we talk so much about how how much role playing is kind of given to us and how much it's helped us as writers and I personally feel like I only started playing Dungeons and Dragons four years ago and I personally feel like I wouldn't have finished my my latest book The Ice House but without it I feel like it 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 keyed me back in to the joy of making stories and it had some kind of I'm, I'm really indebted to my friends who I play with who kind of in you know inducted me into that world and said hey do you want to be part of this um it means a lot and so if I sort of sound like I evangelize about it a bit it's because I'd like you to be able to have that experience too I'd like you to be able to have that lightness and that fun of creating stories and know that you don't have to be a a particular type of person to kind of get into it these things are all out there and available for you to go and have fun and like have that joy in your life and help you give yourself the practice of just that age-old tradition of human beings sitting around a, a fire just shooting the shit going what if this happened oh like that that's not a story let me tell you a story collaborating and giving something over to the gods of chance rolling the casting the knuckle bones and this you know whenever you create these stories around the table there is a there is a, an extra player there this kind of strange kind of like wild card this x factor the, the this chance the way you roll the dice and nothing's quite certain and and that makes it it has a kind of alchemy to it so look i'll i don't want to go on too much longer because i'd really like to just get into the episode because you know there's a lot we had a good long chat and we get into lots of different things but before i go any further just my sort of semi-regular reminder that this show does not have any sponsors um although i'm open to sponsors all, all the time as long as they're kind of like suitable for the audience of wonderful wonderful writers and readers but um in the meantime there are two key ways that you can support the podcast Uh, and i realize that when people do these kind of things these little adverts then like even me even knowing how difficult it is to like put a podcast together how much effort it takes how many resources it takes i still kind of slightly switch off that's okay i understand you don't have to listen to this you can skip past it if you like but for those of you who would like to help who would like to help me keep the lights on because i just do this on my house on my own it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time out of my working day and i'm a part-time dad looking after my daughter so i only have about like a 20 hour week to work in and it takes a lot of time to put this together i love doing Doing it but <laughs> there's always the danger that it will be the ruin of me if you'd like to support me i am a full-time professional author that is my those 20 hours a week when when i'm putting them into work that's what they go in to is writing novels it would mean the world to me if you could support me by um by pre-ordering my next book which is called the ice house i've been saying to you that if I got 1,500 pre-orders for it, then it will be a bestseller in its first week. It's coming out as a hardback. It looks absolutely sexy. It's about an old lady um, being pulled out of retirement for one last job. It's about a centuries-old battle nun 
field medic pathologist who wants to kill her boss. It is pretty wild, but it's also just kind of about love and loss and getting older and it's just all the good shit basically i've put my heart and soul into it and i think you're going to i think you're going to enjoy it but don't trust me you know they, you know i've people have read it and they've told me it's good right that's not great it's not a resounding there's no reviews out for it yet because it's not out but look if you want to get get it I'll, there's links in the show notes um that that's the best way to support me and of course my previous novel the honors a couple of people have asked me what the relationship between the two books is um because they are in the same world i would say the closest uh, comparison i can give is it's the same relationship as alien and aliens um in that you don't have to have seen alien to understand aliens but they're in the same world that's it really i if you order via um uh, there's a link to mr b's emporium which is a wonderful independent bookshop in bath uh then they do free worldwide shipping and i will sign all the copies that they get pre-ordered and if they get over 100 they've got like around 30 odd pre-orders there now then i'll um make some a little bit of extra material and um, pop it in with each book for you um but otherwise you know you can get it through wordery you can get it through Amazon. I, I sort of if you've got other options, Wordery is actually cheaper than Amazon at the moment. Um, then I recommend that. But you know, you make your own choices. I'm totally fine with whatever makes you happy. That's the main thing, you know. Um, so that's it. Thank you very much. Oh, and by the way, I've got a coffee page as well, which is just where you can drop me a few quid if you want to help me keep the lights on, cover my website hosting costs, my uh, hosting. That's it. Right. That's the entire um, intro. Thank you for sticking around. I really hope you're having a lovely week, by the way, and I hope that your writing's going well. Remember that I do have a um, a mailing list as well. Not to, I don't send out news on it. It's just called the Weekly Writing Workout. And if you sign up to it, again, link in the show notes, link on my website, timglebpark.co.uk. Um, if you sign up to it, then every Friday I send out like a little 10 minute n brand new writing exercise for you to do. So it's just a way of you, if you can spare 10 minutes a week for your writing, that's all I'm asking. Um, it, m it means every week this year, I can guarantee you an easy win. And a way of you training that creative thing. So every week you can look back and go, oh, I did that one thing. And every week we can be putting something either in your notebook, if you've got a physical notebook, or in the folder that you keep on your computer. And I can make sure even if you're, you know, work's crazy, if you've hardly got any time because the kids are up all night, uh, if things are difficult for you right now, whatever, however it's going for you. If you are working on two novels, you're a best-selling author and you would just like a chance to piss around once in a while, I can give you that for free. Sign up in the link or just Google uh, Tim Clare Weekly Writing Workout. I won't try and uh, sell, sell you any uh, charming porcelain commemorative plates. It's just something fun that I'll do and uh, I'm using it as a way of road testing a bunch of exercises uh, and I might well at some stage Put them into some kind of compilation but that's that's what's in it for me in case you're the kind of person who gets deeply suspicious whenever ever anyone 
is doing something with no, uh, no obvious benefit to themselves. You understand, like I'm poor at monetizing things. That's why. That's why I'm falling back on my um, uh, on, on appealing to um, your sense of pity when I say buy my book. You should buy my book, though. It's going to be fucking ace. Uh, and I've signed off on it now. I've done the acknowledgements page. It's going off to be printed in the beautiful blue hardback. So um, that's exciting and. If it's slightly melancholy as well to let that world go. I don't get to play it anymore. It's yours now. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Right. Shush, Tim. Let's talk about someone else's writing and a fantastic novel it is. Here is me chatting to the author, Gareth Hanrahan. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a podcast for writers and readers and anyone who loves stories, anyone who thinks about writing stories, sometimes anyone who might be just sparking around the edges of writing or anyone who just has a morbid fascination in how the sausage is made, the story sausage of course. Um, today I am chatting to Gareth Hanrahan, who is well. We'll get we'll get to that because one, I'm going to do an intro. I, I will have done an intro where I've explained who he is and given you a little bit of his bio before you hear me say this. But secondly, because I think it's better to let him explain some of that. Hello, Gareth. How are you? Sorry, that was a weird intro. Not too bad. <laughs> yeah, slightly, slightly wondering what you've got yourself in for after I. Uh, um, so we're going to talk about your novel um the gutter prayer and we're going to talk a bit about you and we're going to talk a bit about writing but i thought a good place to start if slightly pedestrian um is i just wondered can you can you tell me like when did you first get into stories when and storytelling um i don't mean i was always like you know someone who loved writing i mean i can remember when I was about like ten or eleven or so, um, in in primary school, the, like the the teacher was out, the class was messing around, and the vice principal came in. I was shouting like, "Yo, uh, <coughs> oh no!" So we were watching a video in school, and everyone else was talking, and the teacher came in and said like, "Yo, right, if you don't stop talking, you'll have to write an essay. Who wants to like shut up and watch the video? Hmm. Who, wants, who wants to write an essay?" And I put up my hand. <laughs> <laughs> which in retrospect was like you know probably came across being horribly cheeky but in my case was perfectly genuine i, I liked writing essays <laughs> That's, yeah. yeah it's it's kind of it's we, so were you at that time were you the only person you knew who want wanted to do that like as a child at that age were you the only person who wanted to write wanted to do stories i don't know my, my my uncle is a playwright so i was sort of vaguely aware even then that writing was a thing you could do as a job um but i also uh at the time was fascinated by computers so my grand plan was go to college get a degree in computer science get a real job and then write on the side and that didn't last past the first year and a bit <laughs> I, I, you are the, I'm just, I'm just kind of like a bit sort of taken aback because you're the first person I've spoken to on this show who has, I guess like a, I feel like kind of a kindred spirit, but like I 
remember going to sort of doing a summer school when I was sort of like a kid and you could choose a morning course and an afternoon course and the morning course I chose was computer programming and the afternoon one was drama and I couldn't understand why no one in doing the morning course was in the second course they were such radically different groups and it was weird to me that I liked computers and I also liked stories. But I mean, that's bizarre to me as well, because they are, in many ways, very similar. In both cases, you're sort of like, you know, explaining something to an audience and trying to elicit a reaction. Just the computer is a very, very, very dumb audience. Which <laughs> <laughs> and likes the stories to be very, very specifically formed. Um, whereas a novel is supposed to elicit emotion or whatever. But in both cases, it's all about structuring information presenting in a fashion that your audience can digest and aiming to have the, the, that structured information flow towards the desired result, whether it's like, you know, a satisfying story for an audience or a working computer program. So I mean, it's all about basically taking information, structuring it, shaping it, and formulating it in a readable fashion. Oh my gosh, my mind is being blown and i'm now thinking like okay so i've done stand-up and that kind of like look of silent disapproval on an audience's face it's like them returning an error message yeah, right they, 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 they failed to compile it <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely amazing i don't know why this has never occurred to me before of course so what do you think it was about what do you think what was it about computers that appealed to you um i think it was, it was just sort of an exciting thing at the time and this would have been like i was sort of, i was i was born in 78 so like you know sort of vaguely what i wanted to do when i was about 12 so around 1990 and we just got computers in the school back then and they were like we were playing on like you know these old bbc master compact computers and we had games at home and it was all sort of fun and exciting. And writing was also fun and exciting, but I thought, like, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, like, you know, more potential, more growth here, so I'll, uh, um, I'll sort of focus on the computing stuff. Um, but, I mean, in both cases, it was sort of the desire to be able to sort of, I don't know, shape the universe to my will, to be able to sort of create, create something for other people to use, whether it was a computer program or fiction. I, I, cause that you, so you must have been maybe, but I, I remember, I, I, I remember that computer when I was using, uh, computers and really into kind of my hardcore <laughs> yeah. kind of like nerd phase, which hasn't ever left me. It just, I just set it up and then being a nerd was kind of like an exe file in my <laughs> head that kind of at some stage l- later on in life just, activated and then decom- decompacted but um, I, I want I want to ask about like because I guess the actual cross a, a crossover at the time for me was like text adventures and stuff like mm-hmm. that right where there were you could go to a computer and read huge amounts of purely text-based games where you could have some control but and there were hidden things in it did you ever re- play any text adventures at the time I played a few but then I discovered tabletop role-playing and that sort of took over uh, that that sort of, sort of same area of the brain, um, because that's basically the same thing, only far more flexible. 
Yeah, because it's yeah. got a human being at the end. Exactly. So can, can you talk a little bit about your emergence into tabletop role playing? Um, we might, I might occasionally uh, stop you just to um give some kind of like uh like little uh, footnotes for people Ex- who don't play. But you know, we've had a few authors on here who play uh, tabletop role playing games, and um, I in the last four years have started myself so i'm a relatively late comer to it but a real enthusiast can you talk to me about how you got into playing uh tabletop role-playing games well i'd I'd read the lord of the rings at a young age and then the library there was this talking week where they were doing various talk related events and one of those was a middle earth role-playing game session and i'd never heard of role-playing at this point i had no idea what it was but I went in and there were always people around a table and with character sheets and little miniatures and everything. And they asked people to join in and I joined in and they handed me a character sheet saying, you are an elf who has passed through Moria. And I thought, okay, this is the best thing ever. I don't know what it is, but it's fantastic. Mm. Um, so I played that, um, went out, bought the books, started a group in the school, um, played that all the way through secondary school, played more games that through college, got involved in conventions, in writing games for conventions. That got me into doing some freelancing for various role-playing companies. And then when the computer job I had vanished, I kept on freelancing. And that was like the next 15, 20 years of work was just writing role-playing games. For for people who haven't ever played a role playing game before, who are still the kind of like tentative child you like round right. that table, that there was something adventury, possibly cool going on, yeah. but you didn't know what. What what is it? What happens when a bunch of people get together to play a a a, 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 a role playing game live? What what are people actually doing? Because to a lot of people, including me, a few years ago. There's we've got a notional idea, but don't actually know what it is. Do like, are you dressing up? Do you no, like the, 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 the one of my favorite descriptions is improvised radio theater, because uh, it's all spoken, all descriptive. You have one person, usually called the games master or the dungeon master or the keeper of arcane lore or the holocaust god, depending on the game, who sits there and describes the scene you're in, the situation. Uh, and then the other people who are playing characters say what their characters do in reaction. So you are walking down a dark uh, dark tunnel. There's strange writing on the walls uh, with glowing runes. And there's a door ahead of you. And the door is moving towards you slowly. As it's sort of crawling up the walls of the tunnel. What do you do? And then, and then you do. And then you say. Yeah, and then, the, and then the, and almost inevitably the players will have found something stupid to do that is not, not this nothing to do with either of those things they yeah. go oh um i'm going to actually head back to the village and i want to speak to that um gnome that we saw in the bar uh that you mentioned briefly at the beginning of the session no of course you know i'd say you yeah. know so i might say oh i want to I, can I read the runes? Do I recognise yeah. what they are? That kind of thing. Yeah. I'm hoping that they would give me some clue to work out maybe what this door means or something like that. Yeah. But of course, the jo- the joy of role playing games, as opposed to a like, you know, computer game, or whatever, is that you can go back and talk to that gnome because it's completely flexible. Because the games master is making the story up or adapting the story on the spot. 
So a good games master might be able to go, okay, you run back to the gnome, and the gnome says, oh, you saw the walking door. Yeah. It's been hunting me for years. Ah, it's coming here. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's because in a game you have like those characters, and I think I think they I heard someone refer to it as um, it's something like empathy degradation or something. But basically, this idea that if you speak to a character in a game after a certain number of times, they'll have used up all the text that's been written for them, and then you'll stop believing them in them as real bit or empathizing with them because you realise they're just the shopkeeper and that part of the world becomes not real for you. Whereas in a role-playing game, that character can grow. You can, yeah, you can, the people who come back to these characters that you never meant to be a big part of the story at the beginning. Well, your example of Tolkien, he never meant the One Ring to be a big part of the story. He put it in there and then later on went, ah, actually, this would be a pretty cool thing to write a story around. I mean, everything in a role-playing game is is fractal. Like, you can zoom in on any part of the game and because the game master making stuff up on, on the spot or improvising on the spot, they can elaborate on anything you pick, anyone you talk to. Yeah, I think I think, and 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 we joke about like I, it's you know a common uh, joke amongst like GMs and stuff to talk about. Oh, the players always take the story in quote unquote the wrong way, but I don't think we ever really mean that because what we mean is an unexpected way that makes us think on our feet, and that's. The really exciting part, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I could go on for ages about the story structure of role-playing games and how to how to write them and how to sort of account for that. Like one of the things that I've done a lot of is pre-written scenarios for role-playing games, which are sort of not, scripts is the wrong word, more like sort of like you know pre-planned set dressings almost. As in, like the classic one is like a dungeon or something, and the adventure book would have all the like you know locations in the dungeon the map of the dungeon there'd be a list of the various monsters and creatures you might find but you're still dependent on the games master to go and interpret that for the players so if the players go in if they go left you turn to chapter th- to location three if they go right turn to location five and you all sorts of tools in there for the games master to improvise responses based on what the players say and that's fine the sort of constrained space of a dungeon but if your story is a bigger one they're going to work out like you know how can I give the players the most choices while still not having the book be ten thousand pages long covering every yeah. individuality. So you've all these things where you sort of like you have to loop the players' decisions back to sort of choke points, so you can so you can keep the story going on roughly the right path while still leaving the players freedom. That must be see because that I'd really like to ask you about this idea of how you how you write for something where players have got some freedom because. It seems to me I've you know I've I've played as a player and I've played as a GM as well and I really enjoy it um, and I'm amazed at the skill that goes into writing a pre-written scenario because players are so free to mess it up and so often actually I'll move the players into a room and then they'll react to something and I'll go oh that's why this room's here. You know, they'll do something and I'll go, oh, that's why this room is full of these sleeping dogs in kennels. Oh, I see. They're going to wake up and warn the people in the next room. I don't notice it until I see players interacting with it. So it's a real skill of being able to put yourself in the shoes of some inherently... (laughs) It's like you writing a story, well, writing a novel, and the without the protagonist in it. 
Exactly, yeah. Or basically setting up a novel where you don't know who the protagonist is or what exactly they're going to do. <laughs> that's So how, how do you, when you approach something like that, how do you deal with that? Because that seems to me, that's a terrifying thought <laughs> to me. Well, you're, you're, not, you're not completely blank because the nature of the game will tell you not who the protagonist is, but what sort of person they are. So if you're playing a Dungeons and Dragons game, then where you can sort of safely assume that the protagonists are some sort of wandering adventurers. They might be out for loot. They might be out for glory. They might be like you know, heroic do-gooders. They might be backstabbing thieves. But if you give them an adventure hook, they're probably going to follow it. And they're probably going to take a fairly sort of direct hack and slash kill everything approach to things. If it's a mystery game, the, you probably know the, the characters will be detectives or investigators or in some way they're going to be grab onto the mystery and carefully investigate the clues. They're going to be subtle about it. They're probably going to be especially confrontational. So you know roughly what sort of person they are. So then it's a question of working out what they're likely things that things they're likely to do, things they're a bit as likely to do, tangents they might go off on and how to loop those tangents back into the main plot to give them the freedom but but give the, the illusion of total freedom Sorry. but not uh, let them go off, off in a direction that will lead them completely away from the main plot that's really yeah it's yeah the illusion of the illusion of freedom is like it sounds like you're being a bit uh, it sounds I think like you're being a bit mean to say oh well we're trying to steer the players back on but it's really for for their own good so they can find the most exciting things and you can keep the adventure moving because otherwise you end up with sort of spending three sessions with people buying shoes and stuff and yeah. you want to make sure that they have events and story that hits them. Indeed. And also you try and make sure that those events and stories are also incorporating stuff they've done. So if they go off an ally with the orcs then you've a scene later on where having those orc allies will pay off. If they kill all the orcs there'll be a scene later on where they can use the treasure they got from the orcs to overcome another obstacle or the same obstacle even but it, it becomes the player's story that they have helped shape so so things that decisions that they've made yeah. all the way through yeah come back later on and yeah. this character comes back has it been useful to i mean has it been useful to you and if so how um writing uh for players writing something where you have to give away some of your a lot of your control to another group has that ha has that been helpful to you writing fiction and if so how it's been a mixed blessing in my case but that's because i think i spent so much time focusing on this, like, interactive storytelling as opposed to regular fiction because I, I kept trying to write novels and ending up as i said with no protagonist because i was so used to other people providing the main character so i was it's very useful practice for basically world building and coming up with supporting cast members and working out where a plot might go. But the issue is you, you're, you're so used to leaving this blank in the middle of the story where like, you know, you're expecting someone to insert protagonist here. You don't get any practice in writing your own protagonists. Um, so when I came to the gutter prayer, I actually had a protagonist whose, whose initial trait was goes and does stuff. <laughs> 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 that's, yeah but like that is i i sometimes but that's something it's that's a really useful thing to have though i mean i have definitely written stories where the problem has been when i've gone back to it and had a look at it it's like oh this 
protagonist is basically just a cameraman. Like this, he or she like walks into a scene and then watches other people, bit characters, be sort of colourful and insult each other or have a fight, but doesn't have any investment and doesn't do anything themselves. And some, and that's it. I mean, it's a great if to some people it seems obvious, but I think actually it's funny how often we overlook have a character have a protagonist whose trait is goes and does stuff and affects the world because in a role playing game that will never happen because the players are the protagonist and they're never they're they're, well, they're rarely going to be happy enough to sit there and be passive be entirely sort of passive cameras they will sort of force themselves into the plot like one issue that with a lot of um people who start to write role playing game scenarios is that they try basically write them as novels and don't take into account the actions of the players. They expect the players to be passive cameramen. Whereas in my case, I'd gone, I'd gone too far to the other extreme and I had no idea how to do a novel or do do, do, do a piece that actually had a protagonist. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, that's the one thing, like if you're, if you're writing a... Uh, if you're writing, I, I imagine, if you're writing something for players to come in, you can't give any character any villain a big monologue and assume that they will get time to say all of it without someone doing something stupid to shut them up right oh definitely not no <laughs> it's like it's like this person if 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 this whole thing is going to turn on them doing the monologue where they go and now you will see my it's like they'll 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 teleport a cow over the person's head to land on them. Like, as, as you need to make sure they've got something else. Maybe they've written it down in a diary. Oh, yeah. Diaries are very very useful in games like that. <laughs> and now I shall memorialize my epic evil plan. Two <laughs> yeah. two part one. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've been I've been play, running a game, and the number of times I've thought players and players do things that surprise themselves. You know, their character suddenly. Everyone else, the other party, the rest of the party are distracted. They lean in. You go, oh, they're about to interrogate this baddie that they've just defeated. And the person leans in and just quietly stabs the baddie in the back and doesn't ask them anything. And I'm like, wait, how am I going to give you the next bit of plot? And and, and it's really interesting. Those bits, that's why it's so thrilling for me to like run those games is because everyone around the table can be surprise like it genuinely feels especially because you the other thing we haven't mentioned of course is that in most game systems you're using dice or some kind of randomization element that makes when you try and do something difficult it's not guaranteed it's going to work it feels like nobody around the table has got total control over where the story goes and that's very exciting also because it's no one's it's no one's sole fault if it goes of course. Yeah, that's, that's the great thing about role playing games. It's it's so interactive, so unexpected, so like in the so of the moment. But that's also why it's very hard to talk about them without playing them because like it's, it's the world's smallest audience. Because the people who are are, are are in the game are the players. Um, although you do have the whole rise of streaming, which is just a weird thing now, where you've got like sort of celebrity role playing groups playing on the internet. Which is a bizarre and recent phenomenon. Yeah, it's and it's and, it, and it's really interesting. And yeah. You can go on Twitch at any stage yeah. and just drop into any one of multiple role-playing games of um, varying interest to an yeah. outside audience. That's yeah. the sort of fairest way. I don't think people would enjoy watching 
me and my groups playing uh, role playing any more than you. I, I think anyone would enjoy eavesdropping on a long car journey. <laughs> I was with the friends. There Indeed. are some in jokes that don't translate from outside the car, right? Indeed. But so, given all this and the wonderful world of uh, role playing games and the thrill that they bring, why on earth? Would you then plough into the lonely world <laughs> of novel writing where it's all on your shoulders? Um, several reasons. Um, number one, I think it was, I, I wanted to see if, if I could do it, having had several un, un, like, unsuccessful attempts to write long-form fiction, sort of beating my head against it and going, is this something I, I can actually do? And number two, really just... Um, almost just because... Role playing is a very sort of niche hobby, and a novel is something I can explain to my aunt, and she can go, "Oh, you've written a book, then that's lovely, dear." <laughs> so, so, can you can you talk a bit? I, I'm really, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, can you just give a little uh, pricey of what the gutter prayer is about before we? So people are because I've. Obviously, like I've read it, you wrote it, so I just want to make sure other people are on the bus before we start talking about the crunchy stuff about the world and stuff. Cool. Um, the God of Prayer is a fantasy novel about uh, three thieves who are involved in a heist that goes horribly wrong and end up looking for revenge on the master of the Thieves Guild who sent them there. At least that's the starting point. It spirals off then into exploration of this bizarre city full of alchemical monsters and weird gods and crazed saints and high-octane explosives and lots of architecture and stabbings. Um, it's been sort of compared to like China Meevil's Purdue Street Station as that sort of like, you know, weird quasi-industrial fantasy. Um... I don't, it, 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 it's hard to talk about one's own book. Must really get sort of the quick elevator elevator pitch. Yeah, together. no, I, I, yeah. I know because the, yeah. the the issue is like if you were able to get out all you wanted to say yeah. in a paragraph, you would have just written that paragraph, right? The whole point of writing a book is because you couldn't, you can't say it in any fewer words, right? Indeed, I mean the the the, the, the piece of writing that's always the hardest is just the back cover. Where you go, Kyo, summarize this entire book in three paragraphs. Stuff happens. Did 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 Orbit do it for you, or did you write your own blurb? Orbit did it for me, but I, I, I've done blurbs for role playing books and so forth, and it's always the sort of teeth grinding. Stuff happens, and it's good, and so much, much more. Because I, because I got mine back. Canongate did mine, and I got the proofs back uh, for the the honors, which is like a fantasy, not weird fantasy yeah. novel, and um, and it's like a, it's like an interwar yarn, uh, and the and the back cover starts nineteen thirty five, Norfolk, which <laughs> seems like the most disappointing like Star Wars title crawl you could ever have, like I. And, and I'm, you know, it, it's fine, and it worked, and they got people to read yes. it. But it, it's really those wouldn't have been the two words that I would have used to try and hook someone into a, an adventure story. Yeah. Um, I, so like, I don't ever want to sound like I'm being obsequious or a lovey on this show. Um, I never say anything that I don't feel sort of sincerely in my heart. 
I reading the gutter prayer, I have to confess, Gareth, to like some like genuine feelings of resentment as I was reading it and going, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. Oh, that's really. And one thing I wanted to sort of talk about is the one of the unique things that fantasy can do, which I hardly ever get to talk about. So I wonder if you could talk about a bit, which is just have stuff that is cool or something that you read and go oh that's a ri- that's like a little sweet for my brain or a little toy or that's just it, i don't even know what i'm trying to say do you know what i mean like yeah. i'm going to give an example a concrete example from your book the tallow men are like just a cool like you know these people going around with like lamps in their heads like it's they're super cool and they're just like a really interesting thing to have in a city and they put like an image in my head so i was wondering if you could talk about this thing of i guess it kind of connects intersects with world building but um like putting cool stuff in your story can yeah. you talk about this it's not even really a question but... <laughs> no i mean some ideas are sort of stick with you and they don't necessarily connect to a plot or any or have any inherent purpose on their own like in the in the story the talamed are these basically formerly human people who have been condemned and are being used as alchemists and they dip you in this big vat and turn you basically into this walking candle and you're the, you've got this like flame burning inside your head which is basically your sort of artificial brain that keeps you going and they're used as the guards and enforcers in this weird city I mean, in the narrative, there's, for the most part, you could replace them just with, like, you know, human guards. You could, like, you know, do a search and replace the book, and instead of the Taliban leered, it'd be the guard leered, the guard chased them. Um, and that would be fine. There they are, said, mainly just to be cool. Um, I mean, they, they started off, as no one would be surprised, as a monster in a D&D game I was running. And where they originally came from, I think, was back in secondary school. I was doing this art project. I made this, like, you know, bust effectively in clay. And the teacher said, oh, basically, chop the head off, put a light on it. And I went, okay. And it looked way cooler. So that <laughs> that visual image sort of stayed with me and got filtered through um, a role-playing game, a role-playing monster. And in a role-playing games, actually, you have the sort of, like, sort of nuggets of cool where you would have a monster... But it wouldn't particularly have a necessary context. You don't know if the monster's going to be like a guard or a creature in a dungeon or a player character, whatever. So sort of like ladle on like cool imagery and things it can do without any particular context to them. Like, you know, the Taliban are super quick, super fast, um, can't talk especially well, they can sort of hiss and gurgle at you, like knives, like stabbing. Um and have sort of vestigial memories of who they were, but uh, don't really act on them that much. And a role-playing game, you all this really d- disconnected information, and the way you plug that into a novel, you've got this cool idea that's floating there, and it can just be like your abstract part of the world, but then the trick is basically wiring that into the plot so the cool details pay off later on. But because you didn't sort of conceive of it as part of the plot in the first place, it lends a sort of nice organic quality to the plot because you have to like deviate a little bit from the straight arrow of pure narrative to make that cool idea pay off a bit. I think, yeah, it's like... 
I was re- reading who. Oh gosh, and Andrew Hussey, who did like, uh, who did uh, Problem Sleuth, and then uh, Homestuck was talking about how he felt like he had this like inventory theory of narrative, where he's like, I feel like you could put any three objects in a bag, in a rucksack, in a character's briefcase, and the human mind is such a kind of like connection making machine that you could find a way that connections between those three items and ways that those three items could be used to resolve a problem that character faces later on in such a way that no one would believe you that you hadn't planned right from the beginning though planted those three items to be used to solve that specific problem at the end it's all about constraints it's the whole like makes sort of or lipo and those like weird like techniques of writing where you use like you know, don't use letter E or something and you similarly like, you know, you say okay this story has to have look here on my room here an electric battery a I think it's a raccoon no it's a lemur and a coffee cup hmm how will the story that involves a battery a coffee cup and a lemur resolve itself and like you know, and the brain will find these like intuitively satisfying solutions to incorporate those elements already i'm mm. getting a kind of like a uh, subtropical kind of like cyberpunk place <laughs> with like uh like little uh like uh electronic kind of like cyborg lemur baristas coming down like- and kind of like and it's like yeah that was like these ideas are sort of around all the time. And of course, doing tabletop role-playing, and this is why I think it's so use, such a chilled-out way for authors and writers to practice this stuff, you see groups organically come up with these ideas. And I'm not... I don't mean to take away, by the way, from any of the like genius of the stuff that's in the gutter prayer. I loved reading this book so much. It was such a treat from beginning to end. It's just full of cool stuff like that. Um, but it also... I am. I am. Did you have fun writing this? Because it feels like a book that I certainly enjoyed reading it, and I'm. But it also feels like you're having a great time. Oh yeah. Well, once I, once I sort of cracked the initial problem of not having a protagonist, my my creative protagonist, from page one goes right. I'm going to do this thing and poke it and stab it and and run away from it and run towards it, and basically act like a hyperactive lemur. Once the plot was off and going, then I was basically able to like GM for myself, and that's always immense fun. Of... <laughs> Finally, once you get rid of those pesky exactly, players, <laughs> exactly yes. Um, um and... and yeah, but and actually, just to loop loop back into the whole cool idea stuff and the virtue of role playing. This I, every podcast I do turns into a him on how great role playing is and, why, and everyone should do it. One thing role playing is really good teaching you is take a cool idea and playing with it in different contexts. Because like a cool a cool monster in a dungeon, that's fine. But in a role playing game, the players are gonna find a way to like, you know, take that <coughs> take that cool monster and bring it out of the dungeon and you go from having like your know, orcs. Orcs are big monsters with axes and in a role playing game, you'll suddenly find that the players are like, Okay, I want to play an orc. He leaves the dungeon. How does society react to orcs? What jobs are orcs really good at? Do we suddenly have like, you know, a guild of I don't know Orcish construction workers, they're really strong. Is there therefore an, an orc mafia? Hmm. <laughs> are there orc leg breakers? Or are we wronging orcs entirely? Maybe orcs are like these are like you know, naturally peaceful people, but they have 
So why are they down the dungeon? They have some sort of like, you know, territorial or religious reason. Are orcs going on pilgrimages down to the dungeon? <laughs> it, it's, it's, All of those things are bringing yeah. out, and immediately you're bringing out stories, potential conflicts, yeah. potential characters, yeah. potential histories, just from asking a few interesting questions that you're yeah, asking. Yeah, it, it, it's shifted shift the context of the idea. You have this, like, you know, thing, and you pull it from its sort of natural habitat and put it somewhere else. And so you ask, yourself, okay, what's it doing there? How does, how does it work there? What, like, you know, what, what, do, what, what do cyborg lemurs do in coffee shops? What do, <laughs> what, what do they do after work in the alleyway behind the coffee shop? That, oh, yeah. That's a, yeah, like as soon as, yeah, as soon as it's, because you have something that's, and I guess then that, that is going into all these kind of social questions about parts of society that we, that we maybe only encounter in one context, and so we don't have the whole story. We don't think about what happens to this person when they're not serving me my coffee, and that, that's really interesting. And then you're suddenly in a situation where you have, you might have a kind of, uh, you might have a bunch of cyborg r- raccoons if they're intelligent <laughs> enough, like organizing, going and like running a kind of like underground subversive press after hours. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. <laughs> um, right, like you, you get your coffee shop or your coffee cup, and see if your name written on it in Starbucks. It's help us, <laughs> bring us guns. We want to revolt. Yeah, they're genuinely like someone's in there, and it's like starting to. They're passing. They're using it as a means of passing messages. It's like if you get the wrong name, that's not actually a mistake. That is like they're trying to see if that you're the sleeper agent that's being <laughs> <Dude>. activated. <sighs> wow! Like, can you and can you talk a little bit about the process of writing the Gutter Prowls? I wonder if we can like dive into it a bit um, uh, deeper. How did you? start because we know like the protagonist comes to came to you a little bit not at the beginning of the process so what was the work you were doing at the beginning were you making notes was it all in your head what was going on to begin with um i actually did it for nanorimo one year um i basically had this vague idea of um i live, live in cork and cork has lots of churches and there are lots of church bells so i had this random idea of like you know what if someone could talk to church bells and I wrote the start this uh, start the story, this heist involving basically a, a church bell, and wrote the first twenty thousand words in like you know like what two or three weeks fairly quickly, and then completely gave up on it as we want to do because it didn't seem to be going anywhere. I wasn't sure what was going to happen with it, and then a few months later. Started, I'd started another novel, uh, got to a similar stage with that, give it up on that, and my wife said, look, just pick one and finish it. So I went, oh, okay. That... <laughs> because like, you know, the start of a novel is like, you know, you've got, so you've got infinite, infinite possibilities, and then when you have to finish it, it's, like, it's, it's hard, and you have to like, you know, work out where the plot's going. Um, so I sat down with my 20,000 words, wrote a rough outline for where the story could go, and then just kept plugging away at it. And it got easier as it went along because once you have obviously more of the world plotted out, more characters to play with, and you've got sort of the, uh, a games master brain, you can sort of okay, how does Group A feel about Group B? How is Group A working with Group B? Is group, are they plotting against each other? Are they like you? Know, do they even know about each other? What do they do when they find out? And the, the last really three fifths 
wrote themselves fairly quickly as it all sort of became clear to me. That's really cool. So like just this is a really, really nice paradigm, I think, for anyone who's like hits that kind of like really, really tricky bit, which I think is like often between sort of 12,000 to 20,000 words where your sort of ability, the kind of like to go on sheer kind of like brio and kind of have a character, you can have some reveals, you can have a character like running along a rooftop and then a shadowy figure appears and you don't have to know what any of that stuff means. Yeah. But it's only when you get to sort of past 10,000 words and between 10 and 20 that you might have to start kind of like paying back some of that mortgage you've taken out. And it's really useful to when you talked about your games master brain, that that it's a series of questions. So what are the key questions that you ask yourself when you're writing a story that help move it forward? Um... I mean, obviously, there's like you know what happens next, which is this, which is, on the face of it is a very sort of obvious, simple one. But you, I think, characters have a sort of a, a tendency. Oh, sorry, uh, there. You have to watch out for characters who have a tendency to return to ground level, because mm. like you, think it's just sort of like you know, particles in a gas. The opening of the novel will excite them. They'll be bouncing around the place. And if you don't, you will see, is the character going to sort of drop back down to its previous energy level and, like, you know, go back to the normal life? And will they take steps to do that? Like, you know, if you have a character who has just been mistaken for a bank robber and the opening of the novel is them, like, running from the police, is there initial action to go, okay, I need to sort this out. I need to take the most sensible steps possible to get back to my normal life. <laughs> I will go to the police station and report, and report myself. That's a sort of sensible action for the character to take, but it'll make for a fairly boring story. So you've asked, is the character per- person who would do this? Can I change their traits so that they will take a more direct approach? And if I can't change how, how, who they are sufficiently, what obstacles or motivation can I put in their path to divert them to the more, the more exciting path that I want them to go on? That's terrifically useful advice, I think, because I, I do some. I have occasionally seen fantasy novels, which I think are more common with people who have rigidly planned the whole thing before they started, where a character doesn't take what appears to be like the the most obvious, if slightly boring, course, and and doesn't have a compelling reason not to take the course of just going. You know what? I've I've lost. You know, I'm not going to make this money back. I think I'm just going to call it a day and go to bed. You know, like they they don't do that, and there's no real and there's nothing, and it just feels a bit like they're go they're following a plot that yeah was already set up for them. It's so useful to have a character who maybe they're maybe they're proud, maybe they're in a society where people like them don't get believed if they go to the police. There's all sorts of things that can make it interesting, but that's such yeah. a good piece of advice. Make Look at your character and think, are they going to return to ground level? Um, at, the, at the You know, what's their, what's their entropy levels? Yeah, of like exactly, a yeah. Plot? And so oh, you, go on, sorry. Gonna, uh, oh, the, the other thing you can do is stick obstacles in their path. So like, you know, they try and go to the police and, oh my God, there's someone talk, they, they, they get to the door and there's someone talking at the far side and they hear the name being mentioned and oh my god there's, there's a grand conspiracy against me um, and the other thing I would sort of, I sort of did especially with the gutter prayer 
was I'd sort of throw balls in the air early in the book, not knowing how they'd pay off. But like I'd, I'd like you know, mention groups, mention people, n- without any real clear idea of who they were, but assuming that they would pay off later, that I would be able to make them pay off later on. So like there's one early in the book, there's this bit where a character who's just been arrested is fully unconscious overhears some people talking. And I was not really sure who those people were when I wrote the scene the first time. But I was pretty sure I would need mysterious people later on to do things. <laughs> and they had, like, you know, said sufficiently mysterious, portentous things that I was it could be worked back in regardless. So I had those threats drawn. So if, if, whenever the novel was dragging, I'd go, okay, I mentioned this guy, like, you know, 30 pages ago as this, like, you know, mysterious person. I could bring them back and have them go, uh, push the plot along. So this is like, I guess this is um, th- this is all related to kind of Chekhov's gun, where you know Chekhov uh, talked about like if you've got a gun on the mantelpiece in the first act, it must be fired by the third act. This idea of like you yeah. reusing things in the narrative uh, more often than sort of introducing new things, but you're like taking that one stage further and going, you need to load a load of guns and stick oh, them yeah, on the you, mantelpiece. You, you throw as many guns as you as throw, throw lots and lots of guns. Look at things that might have like guns hidden in them. <laughs> <laughs> Conceal guns in every sword cane and like and false leg and everything. And then later on, when you, you have like you when the story's done, you can take out guns that never got fired, but there won't be that many of them. <laughs> yeah, and and like and occasionally you'll have. I think the lovely thing about fantasy as well. We had um, Nate Crowley on the show. Uh, a few months ago and he talked about his sort of like counter counterpoint to that is he calls it Chekhov's gun duck but he talks about in 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 Star Wars um someone saying you, you you know is it like you're not strong enough to he strong enough to pull the ge- ears off a gun duck <laughs> uh, and 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 we don't actually find out within the movies what a Gundark is, of course, like because Star Wars has got so many of yeah. those little references. Lots of people have wanted to go and explore the world. But the lovely thing about fantasy is if you do occasionally throw something out there and it doesn't get used up by the plot, um, that just creates the sense of... A as in, world, as yeah. in the gutter player, there's yeah. this whole city and gosh, we haven't had a chance in this one story. We've just, we've moved through it and sometimes we look down an alley and there's a flicker of that we hear a weird noise or see a shape and we have to move on. But in the back of the reader's mind, it's like, what was, what was that? And if you don't get round to it, then we want to go back to your world and you can, of course, take yeah, that to the bank. Exactly. But you, you, you be careful there um, because if you leave those mysteries too alluring, the, the I almost said player, but the reader will want to go, hang on. Surely that was, that, you, you, if that is important, surely you should go back. But there's a, there's a thin line between like, you know, she saw something into it. It's like moving in the, in the alleyway, but it was okay. And so they moved in the alleyway, dun, 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 and, the, and the reader assumes that's going to be significant later on. You, there are also little tricks you can play with, with the reader's attention, sort of t- like flag. This is like, you know, this is irrelevant. This is interesting, but not relevant to the plot. And it's very close, cousin. This is interesting. It doesn't look relevant to the plot right now, but it might be later on, which is really just a question of in, intent later on. And this is my little plot right now. That I think I think that's and again that's something that's an instinct that you've honed from tabletop role playing games where you realise that if you overdo 
like a description of a particularly interesting painting on the wall of a tavern if you're not or, careful yeah, or, 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 or the gnome in the bar like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the players you mentioned the gnome in the bar earlier the players would assume it's important so either you make that gnome in the bar important or you have we to, to have the gnome in the bar divert the players back towards the main plot but this is but, but I, as writers I, I would say actually something that's occurred to me is we do have and i want to ask you about this because you will have had the experience of working with an editor now as well um i suppose our equivalent of sending players into our world is having beta readers is having reading groups is having an agent or an editor um because if they come back and go who's this guy i want to see more of them sometimes you might go okay i'll i didn't know that that was interesting but i can give a bit more of that or i can answer that or we can go a bit deeper into that can you talk to me about your experience of when you took this book that you were working on in isolation and showed it to other people how did that start to happen and what was that process like for you um it actually went through editing relatively unscathed which surprised me the, the, the sequel i've written had a lot more bits being changed um yeah but the, the the great virtue of a, of a novel is that it's not done until it's done you can, you can go back and change things unlike a role-playing game which is all spur of the moment stuff um insightful did you i mean did you when did you when did you first show it to 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 someone when did you first take what you'd been working on and go i think this is ready to share with someone um i fired at a couple of friends of mine basically going i've written this thing is it any good and they all sort of came back going yes it's interesting we enjoyed it um but none of them gave especially sort of detailed feedback on the content other than like you know, this is good so it's a very boring answer for a podcast <laughs> no 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 it's fine like, yeah. like did you because when people come maybe this is just me but when people come back to me and say this is good but they don't give much detailed feedback i'm my first thing is always uh they don't mean that like it, it's never quite it's never quite and maybe i'm just a bit paranoid but i always go ah. Oh, Oh no, they're just be, they're being kind. They feel sorry for me. Like, but there was that, and that was that enough for you then to go and submit it and start, and you know, saying okay, I'll start sending this out. Or, uh, I think that at this point, I have enough of an ego or enough experience uh, to know that it, like you know, that if they're able to reach the end of it, like I, I, I have confidence in my own ability to like you know, build a world and create interesting backstory and interesting cool stuff my main worry was was the narrative strong enough and the, and the main character compelling enough to carry the reader through it when, I, when i'm not there running the game for them yeah um so if they'd finished it and they swore they had then i went okay this must be at least readable so we'll, we'll, we'll see what strangers think of it um i mean i've been like you're writing full time for like 20 years so while I wasn't confident of my ability to write in the style of a novel I knew I, I, I could write passively in the sense of like you know putting one word down to the right and make it vaguely entertaining um, so yeah I, 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 I suppose I got through it without, without huge changes can you talk a bit about um, 
and this is particularly interesting to me in, interesting to me as a fantasy author as well because like in genre in science fiction and in fantasy um they're fairly unique I, I guess like in crime you sometimes have this as well in that you have trilogies you have series as opposed to you know literary fiction you generally less common um uh, can you talk about your experience of like right going into writing one story in a world and then writing something in the same world you said like it there's been a bit more kind of like editing on that and a bit because second novels are most often where when i'm talking to someone there's a kind of like involuntary exhalation and a kind of you know a, a kind of like oh no um because <laughs> there's more pressure i was wondering how has the second novel been for you and what lessons have you learned from the first one that you've been able to apply to the second one i the second novel i think part of it was and it's really of psych, of psych nervous and self-consciousness because the first one was written like almost as a lark because like you know, I wanted to say, sort of say to myself, can I, you know, can I do this? Does it work? And the fact that it it had worked was very nice. But now I was actually seeing how to write a novel as opposed to messing around on Scrivener, and that created an extra like layer of self consciousness on my part that I had to work as a novel. So the initial draft was, I like, much more sort of carefully structured, much less playful. I guess actually is probably a good description because. It, Instead of just like you're sitting down and mixing it up, I'd like you know, had a sort of careful structure with lots of like you know, pa- <coughs> parallel plots and like you know, themes reinforce each other and so and so forth, and in some ways a bigger focus on character with capital C. I I probably lost the role of myself a bit because the feedback that came back was basically the pacing. This is all off because I was sort of so focused on the characters and their development that I forgotten to take the reader into into account to the same degree so a lot of rewriting to make it you know entertaining <laughs> do you think how do you and because that i think that's really chimes with so with my own experiences as well actually of writing where you kind of as soon it sounds really weird and precious but this idea of like the hardest thing for me to deal with has been people becoming aware of having readers and people saying nice things because then my focus has switched from switched from me having fun and going yeah. to avoiding making mistakes thinking what is this imaginary reader going to like and trying to second guess what they were going to like rather than being down in the world of the story yeah, I mean, one great thing about role-playing games yet again is that when you write material for a role-playing game, it's never going to be experienced directly because always be a games master will go take your stuff and interpret for the players. And with the first one, I was able to sort of like interpret it for myself and just entertain myself. Whereas now, yeah, I'm sort of conscious of, conscious of the of this hypothetical audience. Um, so I guess the, the main trick is just for forgetting about that and letting yourself be swept up in the story and the world. And once I got, in the rewrites, once I got sort of into the intricacies of the setting and like, you know, it was like, you know, playing out all these politics bits, all these like, you know, theological, magical wackinesses and trying to work out like, how, how can I get character A to this place? Not emotionally, but like, you know, physically, how can <laughs> they get there? That was much more comfortable and was sort of knee deep in the integrity of it. 
you forget about the like you know, the novel. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah. it's it's really, and then and then you're, I guess you're experiencing it in this. You're kind of like writing it from the inside out then as well, because yeah. then you're like placing yourself in the shoes of the character and going, what do they see? Okay, yeah. so if I'm in this situation, what do I do? And it's hard to let go, I think, and it doesn't because it feels so much like playing. It's hard. We have these ideas of being grown ups, I think, anyway, and being a professional, you know, capital A author. Yeah, yeah. Where an author would go, okay, I'm going to kind of like get my protractor out and sketch my graph of how the plot's going to go, rather than me going, oh, what if they climbed on board? What if they snuck on board the back of that wagon? Oh, I wonder what would happen. Okay, I'll write it and see what happens. You know, it's hard to to feel that that's okay to do that when you feel like you yeah. might have people over, working over your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it's just like you know, undercutting your own pretense as, as a capital A author and just get back to the fun of it. Because that that's what will come through the reader if you are having fun. Yeah, which is yeah and again it's like really yeah. tricky to kind of like go yeah. okay you need to to write really well yeah you need to not worry about writing really well it's it's tricky isn't it yeah um and, then, just, and also of course when you're like you're right towards a deadline you must have like you know three thousand words of fun each day every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can't think of anything yeah. more likely to kill a kind of like tabletop role playing <laughs> game than kind of like like showing them the book that you were working through and like going we need to get through five yeah. pages of adventure tonight and every night otherwise we are in a lot of trouble <laughs> um can you have you got any we're kind of getting into some re- really useful stuff now about i i wonder if you've got anyone who's because i know there's gonna be loads of people who are gonna be listening to this um really inspired and a tiny bit envious because they're like listening to you and you're going i create i've created this world that's been bits of it have been about in my head for years i've written it all down i had a real well of a, a time and it's created a great novel and it has like i really really recommend i'll put a link in the show notes to the gutter pro but i'm genuinely oh it's really it's just really fun i have to read so many books for this show and i you know i find stuff to enjoy in all of them but it's just really nice to have you know to this book i've been just going back to it because i'm having a lovely lovely time in the world i just i just want i just wanted to ask um people who are listening who are like i've got bits of a world in my head and i want to turn i wanted to make it a story um what's your advice to them where can they start how can they start transforming it from some cool stuff that they can kind of daydream they're daydreaming about to something that is beginning to look like a novel um i think one thing i would definitely recommend to recommend to everyone is jeff vandermeer's wonderbook i've got it i've Hey, I've got it on my shelf yeah. within arm's arm's exactly. reach. Yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, the light in here is bad, so you won't be able to see. But yeah, I think it's yes, absolutely. It's terrific. It's it's actually completely. It's you give give people an idea of what it is. Basically, it's a book about writing fantastic fiction, um, with an emphasis on fantasy and science fiction and so forth. But it takes. It talks a lot about again story structure and like the shape of things and beginnings, middles, and endings, and so forth. But because it's focused on fantasy stuff, 
it also really talks about like you know having cool ideas and letting your the the fun parts of the book flow through. There's a lovely essay in there by Kim Stanley Robinson, which I've taken absolutely taken to heart, but possibly shouldn't have, where he talks about basically the joys of exposition, and he's like you. Know, a normal writing book will say, like, you know, you can't have a character sort of stand there for an entire chapter and, in his case, talk about the, like, you know, the uh, geology of Mars. But, damn it, I'm into the geology of Mars. If you've picked up a book called Mars, you probably are too. So, screw having any sort of, like, you know, plot bits in this chapter. I'm just going to talk about Mars and enthuse about Mars at you. Yeah. And that's, yeah, because, I mean, enthusiasm is to the the most human of things in a lot of ways and you can sort of feel it when someone is talking about something they love and enthusiastic about and that comes through in writing too so if you are enthusiastic about uh, cyborg, cyborg lemurs and their plight then like start, start with that start with the thing you love and then if you you do you need to like think about the structure of the story and it needs to have a beginning middle end it needs to go somewhere but basically Start the thing you love, and maybe the thing you love is the end of the story. Maybe the thing you love is, comes at the beginning of the story. Maybe it's in the middle. But like, you start with the thing you love, and then build out from there in whatever direction f- makes the most sense for that. That's ah. absolutely mm. terrific advice. And if you're right, and because I think maybe it's also like a nerd thing as well. Maybe it's a geek thing, but you. Maybe everyone experiences it in some area in their life, but you learn. I think we often learn that in polite company geeking out about the thing you love you know actually be it tabletop gate role playing be it formula 1 be it crochet whatever that a lot of the time you, you know if you just do that with random people they might feel a bit like they're in a hostage situation right like it, it, it you, you and but when you're writing a book it's different people have voluntarily come to you yeah, and you, they're a self-selecting audience. Yeah, you you still need to sort of wrap them up. You 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 can't obviously can't open up with like you know, like chapter one is not going to be geology of Mars. Yeah. You need to like you know, you you're on Mars. Here's some people, and now one of them will tell you about the geology of Mars. Um, you have to you you have to make do sort of shaped charge of geekery where you like you know, get the get the, get the reader a little bit interested, make them comfortable. And then hit them with your enthusiasm, because in your face enthusiasm is off-putting. But once you sort of like you know, sit them down, give them a cup of tea, and then once they get to know you, be enthusiastic at them. That's very compelling. I think I think that's yeah, yeah that's a really good point because then you're instead of just sh- showing off or you're not giving them a way in for them to join you. Because I think actually yeah. you're right. Like a lot of the times. I feel this when someone's enthusiastic about something, it might be something I've got no real knowledge of, like yeah. rugby or something. But if they yeah. help me understand before they start, then I would love to go on a safari through this world I know nothing about. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. Like, like, yeah, so go on, yeah. Yeah, you know, if, if someone sort of like, you know, starts ranting about some player you've never heard of in a game you don't understand, it's meaningless. But if they take the time to explain, like, you know, here's how the game works, here's where that player is important, then you can become invested in it. And it, it often doesn't require that much explanation or, or sort of um, scaffolding to get someone in, uh, in into your enthusiasm because enthusiasm is contagious. Um, so you just give them that little opening, give them that sort of step up, and then 
let the floodgates open, and, and that will carry hopefully carry them through the story. <sighs> yeah, that's ter- I that's terrific. I really, really, I think that's I think that's excellent advice. And it's just because if you're in, and also because if you write about stuff you're enthusiastic about, that's what that is going to make it easy to keep going. If you're writing about stuff you love, it's going to make it much easier to keep writing that book because you love it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there'll still be mornings where you, you get up and you go, oh, God, I've got, I've got to write this. Uh, like, you know, I, I, I know where it's going. This is just, I like, I, I hate scenes which which feel like puppetry where you're going like, yo, she walked down the hallway. She walked down more, down more of the hallway. She opened the door. She opened her mouth. She gave this plot explanation to the character. The other character emoted her. I mean, that That's hard to do. But you just have to sort of like shove in like nuggets of cool stuff then, which might have anything to do with the, with the plot that has to happen for the story to work. But like you, know, she went to the corridor. She passed a radioactive raccoon. It was one of the, hmm. like, you know, the old cyborgs. <laughs> like, you know, nuggets of uranium in their tails uh, as a heat source to power their systems. They weren't around much anymore. And like, you know, <laughs> now worked mainly in greasy spoon cafes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but that was her treat of writing about the, like, you know, the down and out reactive raccoon will give you a little emotional boost to keep you going to the mechanics of the plot and then assuming you're, you, you, you've plotted things correctly you'll get back onto the enthusiasm train when you've like you know, you, you've actually it's, it's, it's like being on a subway you know what a subway you're on a train and that's carrying you along and you've got to change trains at a station yeah changing stains, trains can often be a bit of a chore because you're like you know, run up and down steps and so forth and that's where the mechanics of the plot getting you from onto, onto the next like p- part of the track and then you're off rushing again on th- on enthusiasm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to sort of like round things up a little bit. I was wondering if you could... I just was wondering like what writers that you, you've been reading, writers that you really love, authors that you really enjoy, stuff that people might be interested in reading if the stuff we're talking about makes them... Apart from obviously your good self, um, who... Have you been reading? Who are some of your favourite authors? Who are you reading at the moment that you really enjoy? What's like really makes you? What are you enthusiastic about in stories? Oh, um, I'll do one slightly naughty plug and pick something I co-wrote with a friend of oh, mine. Please cause... plug, please plug away. It's not, it's, it's not naughty at all. We're, we're helping people find amazing stories because this is ties to a lot of what I was talking earlier. Um, a while ago. I did a project called the Dracula Dossier with a friend of mine, uh, Ken Hyde. Uh One of the games we have is this thing called Knights of Black Agents, which is spies versus vampires. And the Dracula Dossier is an adventure for that. But our starting point was that Dracula isn't a novel. It was actually a after-action report of a real attempt by British intelligence huh. to recruit Dracula. And when it all went horribly wrong, they edited out lots of bits and release it as disinformation, so that if anyone ever found out they tried to recruit Dracula in 1894, they could just go, nonsense, that's Bram Stoker's novel. You're delusional. And they kept the, the real notes. They tried to recruit Dracula again during World War II. There's another incident in the 1960s. And then in the present day, your characters, who are basically like Jason Bourne-esque vampire hunters, get hold of the original text and you actually give the novel to the players because we did a facsimile version of Dracula with bits added back in and annotations in the margins from generations of 
MI6 uh, analysts oh and so forth. Oh, my God. Talk, and you give this to the players. And the players can then go off and investigate anything in that novel. And there's a companion book of Notes for the GM, where each location, character, and footnote has notes on what they find when they go there. So if the players go off and investigate Carfax, there are maps of Carfax, there's notes on what they find there. And it's all basically... Oh my god! I'm absolutely gobsmacked! That's genius! And all all the characters, all locations have different interpretations of them. So if you go to recruit, to visit like Lord Godami, the current Lord Godami, the descendant of Arthur Homewood, who's an MP in the present day, there's a version of him written up as if he's a complete innocent. There's a version of him written up as if he's a good guy who'll help you. And there's a version of him written up as a minion of Dracula. And you don't know which he's going to be until you actually meet him and talk to him. Mm. And the GM just picks out which of these possible interpretations of the character is the one they'll use. Wow. Anyway, oh, that's it, so cool. Um, but it, it, it is it was ridiculous fun to write as well, which comes to... Um, so myself and my friend Ken Ken Height did that, and it took like two years of our lives, and lots of other people like Kat Tobin helping, and it was huge, and it's brilliant, and I'm very proud of it. Anyway, that was the necessary plug. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it, it, it's fascinating just to come back from an author's perspective and sort of see, like you know, it, it's basically a story broken up into segments. Which could plug together in almost any order. Um, actual novels are right. I, I, I like. Um, I mentioned China Evil earlier as a huge influence. Twice during the gutter prayer, I stopped writing for a while. Once when I read uh, Max Gladstone's um, Three Parts Dead uh, from his craft sequence, and once when I read Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities. Both times going, oh, bugger, they've written this novel. That's better. Ah, damn them. <laughs> um, what else? I love um, Jeff Vandermeer's stuff. Um, City of Sins and Mad Men was, well, like, I found it like, ages ago at a random bookstore and loved it. And his recent um, trilogy with the Southern Reach stuff is just, like, uh, have, you, have you read Annihilation? I haven't, no. It's a fascinating book. It's just—it's almost in the first part of it. It's just almost entirely mood. I can remember enthusing to a friend of mine going, "This is the best book I've read all year, and nothing has happened. It's fantastic." Because <laughs> it's just characters basically walking through this this woodland of weirdness, and there's no overt weirdness. It's all very subtle, hinted at stuff, but the characters are so strange, and their interactions are so strange, and it's never really explained to you. At, in, at the start of the what's going on or why they're all just referred to by titles and so forth. And it, just, it sort of plunges you into this very, very off world. Hmm. And I absolutely loved it. Um, what else have I loved recently? Oh, um, Robert Holstock, who's slightly obscure these days, but has been a huge influence on me. Um, his Lavendus and Mythalgo Wood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow! Oh well, thank. I'll put, um I'll put um links to as many of them as I can yeah. in the um show notes and on my website sinclairpat.co.uk. So anyone who would like to go and check out some of those uh, recommendations, I think I'm gonna definitely. You're right. Like enthusiasm is is really infectious. So I'm kind of like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Then you can uh check those out. Uh, 
thank you so much for coming on the show today, Gareth, and talking about your work and giving us all these things. I feel I just I really enjoy doing these talks because I come to the end of them slightly kind of like wrung out from like repeated <laughs> sort of brain explosions yeah. as I'm going to go I have to go away and just genuinely process a, a bunch of new ways of looking at stuff yeah. thank you so much not at all thank you it's lovely and um, everyone you know I'll put a link to the gutter prayer yeah. by Gareth Hanrahan yeah. in the show notes I just think you're going to have such a fun time reading it I really do think you're going to have an awesome time and by the way Gareth I just want to say um, and all the best with the with the the book as well I've been Thank seeing you. it get fantastic reviews so yeah, far it, lots it, of it, people it, seem to be engaging with it and reading it it's weird like, I, cause, I mean, I've been involved in publishing for like 20 years so like, it's not my first like you know publication but it's my first novel in a different world so it's been it's throwing all my instincts off hmm. like, a, a role playing game because it's a much smaller audience might get like you know one or two reviews whereas here it's like you know, oh everyone's talking about it this is strange what's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah whereas i guess with like role-playing games and stuff you just have like people come up to you at um at, at, at cons and then tell you like quite involved anecdotes about strangers that are str- also oddly familiar because they're in a world that up until now has only been in your head but but also they they talk about what they did with your game, uh, yeah. So you, you you and you're fine with that because like you know it's sort of on them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, yeah. We we did this and we had a good time, or we did this and it didn't work. And you can sort of defend yourself, going okay. Or I'm like you, know, there's a level of sort of detachment because it's all on them. Like you, all, you just gave them some cool ideas to play with. They either had great fun with them or it didn't work for them. With a novel, though, it, 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 that, that that intermediate layer is gone. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, and you get all, and I guess yeah. you get all the when it goes well, you are a bit more responsible for that as well. <laughs> Arguably. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Gareth, and Not at um, all. everyone listening. Um, thanks for listening to the podcast today, and I hope you have a fantastic week of writing.